Well, good morning, church family. And Ethan, I forgive you for stealing the thunder. Um, so I am so grateful to be presenting uh, God's Word to you all today. And uh, thank you, Joe and Seth, for asking me. And uh, I'm very thankful that they have us going through the book uh, of Psalms and Proverbs uh, this summer. And because I think it really highlights God's characteristics. And so in the first week, uh, Seth led us through Psalm 145, where we saw God's greatness. And therefore, he's worthy of our praise. And then in Psalm 16, where Joe led us, we see God's sovereignty so we can have joy in God. And that joy in God leads uh, to a casting out of ungodly fear or what the world might throw at us. And then last week, Seth uh, taught us about God's wisdom and, and that, uh, Proverbs 2, 1 through 15, how scripture is our one true source of wisdom. This world will try and teach you all these things, but they're insufficient. They're not God's wisdom because God's wisdom is truth. And so uh, today in the fourth week of the summer series, we come to Psalm 119. And I'll just say that the Lord has used this psalm to transform my life in a lot of ways. And it wasn't until the summer of 2019 when I was in South Africa and we were partnered with a local church over there that I actually heard my first sermon through Psalm 119. And it was on uh, verses 7 through 9, which we'll get there in a minute, but talk about how great God's Word is. And so that sermon, it honestly changed me. It caused me to love God's Word more than, it, than I had been. And, and all, it also led me to memorize it for my edification. And then uh, later that summer, it actually catapulted my comprehension of God's Word, and my theology went forward. In that same summer, I watched the uh, documentary called uh, The American Gospel. So I watched that, and then Courtney and Ethan, they were leading a Bible study through Romans. And the first week that I come to that Bible study, it was Romans 8 and 9. And if it's any two chapters in the Bible that will change your theology drastically, it's those two, uh, for the better or for the good, of course. So, uh, the, and last thing I'll say is the message of this psalm is truly incredible, not just because God's word is great, not just because God's glory is revealed in creation, but just because it helps us see the characteristics of God come to like a mountaintop peak where we can just gaze it, at it and all his be uh, beauty. <clears throat> and so uh, the reason I say it's truly incredible because it, it, it is strategically placed at the crossroad of a chiasm, uh, which highlights its significance. Now, how many of y'all know what a chiasm is? Joe, put your hand down. Uh, so. Uh, I'll briefly explain, and I, and I tried the best way to dumb this down to uh, make it simple and not, um, sorry, no, I, I didn't mean it that way, I didn't mean it that way, make it more simple, sorry, sorry, there we go. So, uh, so a chiasm is, sorry, that got me, uh, so a chiasm is a rhetorical or literary device that starts a, a pattern and then it repeat, uh, repeats in reverse order. So think of the word race car, for example. So you start R-A-C and then uh, you come to the letter E and that's kind of like the hinge point and then the word repeats C-A-R. And so uh, that's ultimately what Psalm 19 is. 
is the letter E, so it's the hinge point. And so it's in the very center of Psalms 15 all the way through 24. And so Joe preached in Psalm 16, and that's a part of this giant chiastic structure. So Psalm 15 and 24, they talk about the righteous king. 16 and 23 talk about comfort and satisfaction in God. And uh, 17 and 22 talk about resurrection and the need for it. And then 18, 20, and 21 talk about God's deliverance. And then finally, we come to Psalm 19, which celebrates God's glory. And so ultimately, all, all of that's pointing to that mountaintop, as I said earlier. And so why do I bother mention, uh, mentioning this? And it's because God's glory was what captivated David the most. And that's why he forms this mountain, uh, mountain of thought with his songs. And so because, and one commentator uh, puts it this way, so chiasm is a literary device, and we'll also see personification and parallelism in this passage. And so a commentator puts it this way of why we want to notice these things. We want to pay attention to, po uh, to the poetry of the Psalms because the beauty of the poetry is meant to communicate the intricacy and the simplicity and the rhythmic magnificence of the one the poet extols. So that's why poetry is used, and it's also used for uh, a good memory device. Like We all have our favorite songs, and we know th those songs by heart because they are repeated in our memory, and we know songs from when we were like five years old. Uh, I know like all the old country songs, I know those by heart. And so that begs the question, what does David ex exactly mean by God's glory? Simply stated, it is his holy character on display. Um, I don't know if I have it up there, but Isaiah 6.3, it says, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the earth is essentially saying to everything around it, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. So it's his glory on display. And so glory in uh, the Old Testament, it refers to weightiness. That's actually what the term means. And so what that means is, the uh, importance of all that everything is, it has weighty significance to it. So picture with me for a minute, if you had a scale, uh, on one side, you place the entire uh, cosmos, and that, and that includes Earth, that includes every black hole, every nebula. You put it on this side, it goes down. You take God's glory, you put it on the other, the cosmos go up like air. Therefore, that means that God's glory is the most important thing. It has the most weighty significance that we can uh, draw our attention to and praise. And so if God's glory is what compelled David to write this psalm, then it goes without saying that God's glory must become the supreme treasure of our affections. And so if far outweighs the light and fleeting pleasures that this life can offer, and if we want to be faithful and effective in making disciples, God's glory must be our aim. It can't be any other aim. It can't be popularity, drawing crowds in here, though we do pray that God would bring people uh, in here to hear his word be changed by the gospel. But that's not uh, like the biggest thing. God's glory has to be the central thing that we hold on to. So. Uh, the main idea uh, of Psalm 19 is God reveals his glory generally in creation and specifically by his word leading us to respond. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but um, 
I've, I've already taken almost 10 minutes. So um, let's see, let's go ahead and dive into the text. So Psalm 19:1, the heavens declared the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment <clears throat> of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we ask that you would speak and move in accordance with your word because we know that unless you uh, speak or move nothing else matters and everything that I say falls on deaf ears so God I pray that you would speak and move by your grace and for your glory it's in Christ's name we pray amen all right so point one uh, that we see from verses one through six is creation heralds a message of its royal creator so this means that God reveals true things about himself through nature and the cosmos. And I want you all to notice uh, the language that David actually implements in these verses to convey this point. And he, and he, like I said earlier, he uses personification to draw this out further. He gives inanimate objects, personality traits like us humans. And this device func uh, functions to show just how skillfully wise God is as creator and they communicate his power and worth and beauty. And so verse one is honestly reminiscent of Genesis one language because David uses some of the same words as Moses did when he was writing it. And so it obviously implies that David has read God's word before in order to inform uh, his knowledge of creation. And, uh, and in that creation, there is an ongoing communication taking place at all times. But here's the thing, as Ethan alluded to earlier, can the stars and planets and black holes and all of that speak? No. Uh, so what, what is he saying there? Their functionality and purpose ultimately demonstrate that they herald a message of what their royal creator is like. He is a God of order and he's a God of beauty. And we just sang uh, that last song, God of Wonders. He's wonderful by everything that he has made. And so I love that that song was uh, connected to this psalm and uh, the two songs after this are actually connected to it as well. And it's amazing how God forms us uh, by his word. Amen. And so 
David is pressing forth the argument that words are important for communicating something. And I think that's exactly why he uh, praises God's word in verses uh, 7 through 11. And so if God speaks this much through creation, and creation's not even saying a word, then how much, does, how much more does he speak through Scripture? And so, verse 2, the present tense use of the Hebrew verbs, they also communicate that this is something that never ceases and continues day to day and night by night. And also, uh, in verses 1 through 4, uh, if y'all like underlining in your Bible, I want y'all to underline every single verb that you see in verses 1 through 4. That's okay, I, I give you permission to. Um, the heavens declare, the sky above proclaims, day to day pours out, night to night reveals knowledge. And then uh, you kind of have a break in that argument. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. And then it continues in verse 4, their voice goes out, their words to the end of the world. And so verse 3 claims that uh, there is not actually uh, any speech or voice coming forward and verse 4 simply reaffirms what verse 1 and 2 say and that their verses, uh, voices do not stay in one place but they go uh, all over they resound forth through the entire world and so this is actually the verse that Paul picks up on in Romans 1 19 through 20 where he says for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And he, he'll actually use that very same verse, uh, Psalm 19.4, to argue in Romans chapter 10 about how the Jews, did they not hear the gospel? Like, are they not going to be grafted in? Uh, but that's another side note that I don't need to go down. So... Charles Spurgeon has, uh, this is what Charles Spurgeon has to say about this passage. It is not, or these verses, it is not merely glory that the heavens declare, but the glory of God. For they deliver to us such unanswerable arguments for a conscious, intelligent, planning, controlling, and presiding creator that no unprejudiced person, person can remain unconvinced by them. Like you can't just look out to the world around us and say, this was made by accident. I, I, I just don't believe that. And those, those that believe in the Big Bang, they're foolish. Like we know that because this is what God's word says. It is uh, the source of true wisdom, right? So this psalm is beginning to make clear that there's a distinction between knowing about God and actually knowing God. So we can know things about God through creation, but his word specifically reveals uh, to us who he is, therefore we can know him. And so um, an illustration I have <clears throat> for, for this is uh, there are so many people that ha have lived throughout human history and like, they're pretty much well known for what they have created. And so what do Van Gogh, Mozart, and Shakespeare all have in common? Well, they're, they've received human praise for hundreds of years for their spectacular works in art, music, and theater. And so, if that much glory is given to men who created so, or something so small, how much more glory does God deserve? And I'll go a step further and say, what we spend our time, talent, and treasure on most 
is what we glory in the most. So are we glorying most in God because he deserves it? He's created everything that is. Or do we glory in sports teams? Uh, I'll confess, like the Lord hit me across the face uh, about that earlier this week. Do we glory in our jobs more? Do we glory in our families, uh, relationships, or like traveling? What do we glory in most? It ultimately reveals uh, our heart's true, true affections. And so uh, another thing is, are we declaring and proclaiming God's glory to those around us? The cosmos do it and they can't even speak. And so we talk, and I say this a lot, we talk a lot about the things we love because it reveals our heart's true affections. And so what is the thing that's vying for your heart's affection this morning? Um, like Later on, we'll have a time of communion, and if there's something that's vying for your heart's true affection, lay that at the altar and give that over to the Lord and confess that to Him. So, uh, we'll continue on. So, in Psalm 19, 4 through 6, uh, we see that He transitions from talking about create, or, uh, the heavens as a whole to specifically talking about the sun. And so he uh, goes explaining what the heavens do to now how they do it, or telling us how they do it. And once again, he rehashes on Genesis 1 where God created light, and he mentions the sun where God said in Genesis 1, or Genesis uh, 1, 3, let there be light, and there was light. And so David is continuing this creation narrative, and I want you all to see that this is a beautiful personification of the sun. And so uh, the night sky is like a tent for the sun. Uh, you could say that the sun has a lot of space. Okay, thank y'all. So uh, last week was Father's Day, and Seth did not share a dad joke, so uh, you're welcome. And like all dad jokes, they're pretty bad. That's why we laugh at them. So, uh, and then at dawn, uh, the sun burst out of this chamber, out of this tent, and this scene of personification is meant to draw our attention to a wedding. And so I have not had this privilege yet, but married men, think about the day that you were nervously excited to see your bride. Were you not overwhelmed with joy and anticipation to meet her at the altar? And um, that's exactly the picture that David's painting here, that the uh, son does this with such anticipation and with such joy um, that he uses uh, also the analogy of a strong man uh, who's running a race and that strong man doesn't look back because what happens when you look back when you're running a race? You're going to fall, the turf monster is going to get you or like whatever it may be. And so the idea here is that the son obeys God with joy and he doesn't look back. Uh, the son doesn't complain or grumble about anything here. And so, my toes were stepped on a lot this week. So, does the son's joy in obeying God characterize your obedience to God? Like we have distraction, we have pride, grumbling and complaining and self-centeredness and whatever indwelling unrepentant sin that you have that's keeping you from pursuing after God with joy and obeying what he has called us to do, like... Once again, lay that at the altar of God and so that you can uh, obey Him and not perfect obedience, 
but obedience that says from the heart, like, Lord, I love you more than anything else in this world. And so if God has so strategically placed the planets and the stars that they convey a message of glory, then how much more has he strategically placed you where you are at to do the same thing, but better because you can actually speak. And so in verse six, he says, his rising is from the end of the heavens and his circuit is from the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. So David here teaches us about God's wise power and his omniscience. Nothing escapes the eye of God. And that includes like your private sin that you want to hide in the deep, dark corners of your heart. Like God sees everything. And so ultimately that should strike fear in us. But at the same time, it should encourage us to go to God in prayer and say, Lord, I'm wrestling with this and I lay this before you. And he loves to hear his children cry out to him. And so. At the same time, we can conclude from this section that there is absolutely no architectural feat or engineering that can or that comes close to comparing with the vault of the heavens. Sorry, engineers in the room. Um, well, actually, I'm not sorry. God's word said it. So uh, there is nothing that compare with that. And so in these verses, we have seen that God's glory is revealed in creation and that he always gives a witness to himself by doing this and that's uh, paul's argument in romans 1 however it is insufficient to save and so general revelation was never intended to save which is why we need special revelation and that's where we turn now so point two the bible is sufficient for knowing god uh, and verses seven through nine uh, we See, David pray, praise God uh, for his, his perfect, his sure, his right, his pure and true word. And, it's, and you can also incorporate clean into that too, uh, but we'll get to that in a second. So here we see five descriptions of God's word, and we see one response to God's word, which is uh, the fear of the Lord, and you see its quality and its result. And so these three verses are like looking into a tree, of a forest of Psalm 119. So, spoiler alert, Joe's going to be preaching on Psalm 119 next week. We expect you to preach through all 176 verses. I'm just kidding. At least one, though. Um, and so, David is able to see God's glory in creation because he has received special revelation from God. And this type of revelation refers to more specific truths that can be known about God through supernatural means. And this is particularly seen in the person in and work of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And so where general revelation is insufficient to save, special revelation is more than sufficient to save. And so I want you all to see in verses 7 through 9 how uh, David characterizes the sufficiency of God's word. In uh, 7a, uh, law of the Lord actually refers to instruction given at Mount Sinai. And so what's intended to convey here is that there is not a single flaw or contradiction in what God intends to communicate and his perfect word revives or better yet restores our soul through repentance. So we know that God's word is perfect. So what does that tell us about ourselves? That we're not perfect, that we need God's word in order for it to restore, to give us spiritual life if we are to follow after him. 
And so we are exhorted here to follow God's instruction with the same joy that the sun uh, runs its circuit throughout the heavens. And in 7b, it refers to the testimony of the Lord. And this uh, was used to refer to the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament and was intended to be a trustworthy or uh, something that was trustworthy and a place of refuge. And so think about sharing your own personal testimony for a second. Your story is about what God has done in your life. And nobody upon hearing that can say, oh, that's not true. No, your story is true because God revealed it uh, to you. And like our te- I-, I could get into like your testimony is not the gospel, but that's a- another uh, conversation for another time. And so uh, one commentator says this, reliable testimony swears to how things really are, what really happened, and what really should be done. And so we talked about last week how wisdom comes from God alone, and he is the one who takes away our ignorance and our foolishness and gives us something we can fully know and trust with certainty. So making wise the simple. So the simple-minded in the book of Proverbs is actually referred to a foolish man uh, who doesn't really know anything. So God is the one who gives us truth so that we can truly know him. And then in Psalm Psalm 19, 8, verse 8, a precept is a moral directive. So the moral standard that he holds people to is never wrong or missing the mark. And so David can say that God's precepts rejoice his heart because they don't lead him to shame or to guilt. And so ultimately, we know that we miss the mark all the time. And just as uh, kids... Uh, obey your parents like they can say hey good job or whatever and that makes you rejoice right it makes you joyful and so that's kind of the same picture here and then in AB what God commands is always free from corruption he is immaculate in holiness and what he commands us to do will always enlighten our eyes because we become more like him as we pursue holiness and so indeed nothing in all of scripture can lead us to sin and that's very good news uh, for us. And then in uh, verse 9, David breaks the pattern just a little here, but the flow of thought is the same. And whenever we read the Bible, it should cause us to fear the Lord, not in the sense that we're like, oh, man, like God, God is so uh, fearful, though he is a consuming fire. But it, this means uh, out of like awe and amazement, like, yes, God, we praise you for those things. And then also the term clean here relates to ritual purity. And so the thought is the more that we continually expose ourselves to scripture, the more or the less inclined we are to sin. And and that's exactly what God uses his word for. And so by his transformative grace, he enables us to endure forever in his presence where there is fullness of joy, as Joe preached on two weeks ago. And it is impossible to become more like Jesus without a steady intake of God's word. Like we need God's word. If we are going to be truly transformed people that live for God, we have to be people of the word. And I don't say that in a legalistic sense, but God's word has got to be a steady diet in our lives if we are to grow. And so in 9b, David ends this pattern of thought by extolling the righteousness of God And it is impossible for God to render an unjust decision or be tempted with corruption. And so God cannot lie because he is the ultimate source of truth, as we learned last week. 
And then uh, lastly, um, summarizing this section, I want you all to look at those three verses and notice the most reoccurring phrase. It's of the Lord. You don't need any other book but the Bible. Yes, David wrote this psalm, but he says, of the Lord, of the Lord, of the Lord. It is from God. It is not from man. Well, it, it partially is from man because man or God had man write it, but it is a message from God and God alone. And so it is sufficient for knowing God truly and bringing salvation to sinners. So like all these other false religions that have all these other books or whatever, they're just leading people astray. And ultimately, we know what happens when people are led astray, that they suffer judgment in hell forever. And that should weigh heavy on our hearts. And so, do we truly believe that God's Word is perfect? Is it trustworthy? Even the parts, like uh, I said earlier, Romans 8 and 9. Do I believe that that is perfect? Do I believe that it's trustworthy? It may be a hard teaching to understand, but because God is perfect, His Word also has to be perfect, and it can also be trustworthy. And so to sum up uh, these three verses, Jackie Hill Perry says in her book, Holier Than Thou, if God is holy, then he can't sin. If God can't sin, then he can't sin against me. If he can't sin against me, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being there is? And that is a resounding yes, church. And so in and then David continues in verses 10 through 11 where he praises God, God's word so much that he equates it to, to value and to uh, uh, like pleasure that we have in eating. And so after showing us what God's word is like, David shows us uh, how, how much worth we should have in the Bible. And so he mentions two things that we humans pursue after relentlessly, and that is money and that is pleasure. And so, but for him, David, who was king over all Israel, and at this time, he was at the height of his reign. He had all the gold he wanted. He had all the, all the food like laid before him at the table. He had all those things. Uh, I lost my spot. Hold on. Um, but for him, as king over all Israel, God's glory revealed in Scripture was supremely better than both combined. And so uh, I told Joe earlier this week that I had a, a funny uh, illustration, and I guess it's kind of funny, but my sense of humor is kind of, eh. uh, but uh, so, so I will say this, uh, that God's word is better than the next paycheck, is better than your job, because it can't satisfy you uh, like God's word can. And at the same time, it's better than strawberry pretzel salad on a hot summer day, and it, and Big Joe, I'm sorry, but it's better than your banana pudding. And as I was preparing this, like my, my taste buds started salivating. So if y'all are hungry right now, you're welcome. That's the point uh, that I'm trying to draw home right here is that God's word is tastier than the sweetest things that we could uh, go after. And so do we find pleasure in reading studying and meditating on scripture like this and if not it's probably due to an idol that's vying for our attention like i said earlier or like are our priorities set elsewhere 
Is it with our job? Is it with other responsibilities that we may have in the week? And ultimately, what God's Word is saying here is that, that God's Word must take precedence. It must take priority in our lives if we are to truly grow as followers of Jesus. And then in verse 11, he says that the Bible warns us about the horrible effects of sin. But when we obey God, rather than giving in to fleeting pleasures of sin, there is great reward. Now hear me what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we can obey God's word perfectly, because if we could, then Jesus wouldn't be necessary. He wouldn't have to have come and died in our place. And so ultimately, that great reward is not heaven itself. It's not streets of gold, but it's God himself. Like God is our great reward. He's our treasure. He's our prize that we get for obeying him. And so when God, uh, God reveals his glory in scripture, it should transform our affections, our desires, and our goals, and it ultimately brings us to spiritual life. And so it, it makes God's glory our highest ambition, ambition and makes us say from our hearts, not just because we know that the, uh, this is what we should say as Christians, but solely Deo Gloria. Like, for God's glory alone, are we doing this thing? And that actually um, uh, makes me jump ahead a little bit where David says, let the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Are we saying, God, for your glory alone from a heart, or are we just saying that to say it? Because ultimately, God is after the affections of our heart. And so lastly, point three, beholding God's glory in creation in Scripture produces a humble response. Earlier uh, this week on Thursday night, uh, the guys at community group talked to probably 45 minutes about humility. And it, it was very good for me to hear as I was uh, preparing this because I think that's ultimately what God's word does uh, to us. It should humble us. And if it puffs us up, or puffs us up with pride, then something's gone wrong. And that's like saying, hey, our theology is better than yours. Blah, blah, blah. I know the right answer. God's glory produces a humble response. And so in verse 12 through 13, David begins with a rhetorical question in order to convey the pervasiveness of his own sin. He says, who can discern his errors? Trick question. No one can. And so uh, that's why he, he offers up three pleas for God to answer. And he says, uh, and also this was, so we often talk about like the gold nugget in a, uh, a passage that God's just like, well, like, I've never seen this before. Well, that gold nugget is in these two verses. And so I, I want y'all to notice what he's praying for. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. That's justification. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous or willful sins. Let them not have dominion over me. That's sanctification. And then the last one, then I shall be, it's more of a proclamation, but then I shall be blameless and innocent of transgression. That's glorification. So you see all three of those themes based in what David is simply asking God to answer. And uh, as soon as I saw that, I was like, yeah, I got to mention that because anytime we have New Testament uh, ideas that come from the Old Testament, that should make us like say, praise God. Um, and so the first concerns uh, the penalty of sin, and David knows without the shadow of a doubt that he's guilty because God's word is perfect. 
it reveals all the flaws in our human heart. And then set, the second concerns the power of sin in his life. And David realizes that he cannot escape, uh, defeat it alone, and neither can we, church. We need God's word. We need the indwelling presence of the Spirit in our lives. And thirdly, God's answer to this request uh, delivers David from the presence of sin. So you have the penalty, the power, and the removal of the presence of sin. And, um, and that's ultimately what you see in justification, sanctification, and glorification. And so a man characterized as someone after God's own heart is brought low after seeing God's glory in the cosmos and scripture. And so we, like, I would not characterize myself as uh, that. And so I know like, without a shadow of a doubt, I'm guilty. And that's why I need God's grace. And so we are so stained with sin that most of the time we don't even realize we're sinning. And that's why he says, uh, declare me innocent from hidden faults. So um, jumped ahead a little bit. So that calls for one of the most important questions presented in the Bible. How can a holy and perfect God be both merciful toward sinners and simultaneously be just and judge sin? Well, ultimately, that several thousand-year-old question is answered in the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, the good news is that for those who are in Christ, God does declare us innocent from sin's uh, penalty. And by His Spirit, we have the power to say no to sin's rule in our life today. And one day, we will no longer be in the presence of sin. And that's very good news. And David is praying for all three of these things like hundreds of years ago. And so that's a beautiful picture of what God's Word can do. It shows us these realities of the Gospel that we wouldn't otherwise uh, pick out on unless God's Spirit dwells in us to reveal those things to us. And so when we humbly confess our sin before God, He mercifully acquits us, not due, uh, not due to perfect repentance or belief, but because there has been a sufficient substitutionary sacrifice. Try saying that five times fast. A sufficient substitutionary sacrifice, and that's Jesus. And so there is great healing found in confession of private sin because we have a great high priest who hears us, and he loves to answer those prayers. And in Christ, we are counted as if we had always obeyed and he had always disobeyed. And so that's what we call the uh, great exchange, that we get Christ's righteousness, he gets our sin. And it's a beautiful picture of how uh, God declares us righteous in his sight because what his son has done on our behalf. And so this is why our union with Christ matters. And David's prayer here and ours too is ultimately answered in the gospel. And so lastly, David closes out Psalm uh, 19 with one of the best things that we can ask God for. In verse 14, he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So after exposing our sin and offering forgiveness, Scripture leads us to greater Christ-likeness because it produces God's intended effect. I know Seth always loves to share Isaiah 55, 10-11, which says God's word will never return void. So if God's word promises, hey, this is going to transform your life, it is going to do that very same thing. If God says the gospel is the power of me unto salvation and it transforms life, it is going to do that. 
And so we should trust that, we should believe it, and we, because we ultimately saw earlier, God's word is trustworthy. It is true. And so this request in verse 14 contains sacrificial language of being acceptable. Like if you didn't have an unblemished lamb, God wasn't going to accept that on uh, the Day of Atonement, so it had to be clean. But for us who are in Christ, it's a prayer and a calling to be a living sacrifice, as Paul alludes to in Romans 12.1. And so David here reveals that God does not care about outward performance, but rather the heart behind that action. Joe often talks a lot about us doing church. Are we just doing church because it's cool here in the Bible Belt? Or are we actually doing it because God's glory is our aim and the gospel is the message that we uh, proclaim? And so God never, I want you all to hear this, God never grows weary or bored in answering these kinds of prayers because it leads us to beholding more of his glory. And that's the goal. And it's only in pursuing this goal, goal we become satisfied. God loves answering that prayer. And so that, uh, I'll actually get to it here in a minute. But we can pray the exact same prayer that David prays here, uh, or actually throughout all of Psalm 19, and God will answer that prayer because he loves justifying, sanctifying, and glorifying sinners for his own glory, and that's really good news. And so lastly, the doxology, or there is a doxology at the end of verse 14, and he ends by praising God for two chief titles uh, that you see repeated throughout the Old Testament, and that is Rock and Redeemer. Both titles reflect the structure of the psalm. Uh, one, verses 1 through 6 talk about creation, and David is trying to use that personification again to connect these things in order to promote uh, memory and praise. And then in 7 through 11, he speaks to redemption through the Word of God. And so God is the rock of refuge to be trusted, and He is the Redeemer who justifies us by grace through faith. And so we see that through the Old Testament that was written hundreds of years ago. And, and the fact that it remains true today testifies to what he says in 7 through 9. And so in concluding, I, I believe there are four key motivations that I think the psalm leaves us with, though there could be more because you can never plumb the depths of God's word uh, because we know that his, he is great and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. So... Firstly, God motivates us, and I tried to keep these simple uh, for memory purposes and write, writing them down quick, but God motivates us to enjoy his creation. Like, yes, you can enjoy fishing, you can enjoy hunting, you can enjoy sports outside, you can enjoy a nice, beautiful sunset on the beach, you can enjoy a nice hike. God wants us to enjoy those things, but ultimately, he has to draw the line in the sand and say, hey, you're beginning to worship this and di divert your attention more to this uh, than you are me. And then next, God motivates us to soak up and be molded by his sufficient word. Like I said earlier, we cannot grow in Christ likeness. We cannot pursue Jesus more if we don't have a daily intake of this. And then thirdly, God motivates us to pray through the Psalms. Ultimately, David is crying out to God in prayer to answer all these things after he has seen his glory in creation and in the word. 
And then lastly, and most importantly, God motivates us to behold His glory ultimately in the gospel. I say this a lot, never graduate from the gospel. Because as soon as you do, you'll grow bored with it, you'll grow bored with God's word, you'll grow bored with prayer, and you won't want to come to church anymore. Because ultimately, if you remember the gospel, that produces humility, and humility leads to us praising God for his sufficient salvation in our lives. And then lastly, and then I'll close this out in prayer, and then the band will come up. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, kind of characterizing what sanctification is. And he says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are our rock a place of refuge that we can cling to, that we can go to when uh, the worries of this world are leading us to despair and to discouragement and to worry and anxiety. And God, you are our Redeemer who has saved us by your grace through your Son, Jesus. And it's by his perfect life, his death on the cross, his burial, and his Uh, victorious resurrection from the grave three days later that we can have life that we can truly know you and so God I pray that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable to you God that we would just not do this as mere lip service but that we would mean it from the depths of our heart And, and God I pray that your spirit would sanctify us make us more like your son whether it be a hard refining process or simply just meditating on your word. God, I pray that your word would have its intended effect in our lives and that we as a church would behold your glory and the gospel. And God, that we would be motivated to share the gospel with those uh, around us, that we would not let this burden of unbelievers going to hell every day May that be our motivation to share with them that they need to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that you would break our hearts for the people in our community, for those uh, across the nations, especially in Nepal where we're partnered with. God, I pray that you would make us more like your son and that we would behold your glory. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray.